So 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a, in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be, my, be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness, to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name 
and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the words that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. Our Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would speak clearly to us and directly. These are wonderful words, a wonderful prayer that should move our hearts, and we pray that it will, and that it will instruct us how to pray in light of the Bible's big, big promise. And this we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. And amen. Now, just to catch us up, we have uh, been studying through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel on Sunday nights with a gap in between. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a big, big chapter in the Bible. It is a very important chapter, hence we've taken a slower pace over three weeks. Tonight is the third of three. Last Sunday, we looked at the promise of God to David in verses 4 to 17. Today, we'll think about David's prayer in response to the promise. The prayer is in verses 18 to 29. Before we consider the prayer, though, let's be clear on what the promise is. Chapter 7, verse 16 is a good summary of the promise. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God's promise to David here is to build on God's foundational promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would build a great nation from Abraham that would bless all the families on the earth. The number will be so vast that the only way you can compass it is to count on a starry night the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach. Now that's God's foundational promise to humanity. And building on that promise, not a different promise, but the same promise, now explained further or amplified, God says this promise will be fulfilled through an eternal king, a king who will live forever, an eternal dynasty, and an eternal kingdom. Now that's what was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, 1,000 years before Christ. 
that God will build a dynasty, a kingdom from David, and that one day there will come a king in David's line who will reign forever over God's eternal kingdom. A king in a kingdom that is for every nation of the earth, every people on the planet. All that God will require is that people trust in the king, kiss the son, kiss in obedience and humility the king for their salvation. So who is the king? Well, God's eternal king is Jesus. We know that. Why are we studying 1 and 2 Samuel? Because it was written under God's inspiration a thousand years before King Jesus. God's purposes are long promised. The king is Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. And through his death, resurrection and exaltation, through his death to atone for our sin to forgive us, through his resurrection to vindicate the effectiveness of his death and to give us life, and his ascension when he was crowned. Jesus was crowned as God's eternal king over God's eternal kingdom. And so with Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation, the eternal kingdom of God has come. Come in the sense of broken into our world. Come in the sense of established, inaugurated. Come in the sense of growing, expanding throughout human history as the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of your sins. As the gospel of the kingdom goes to every nation of the earth, expanding as organizations like Wycliffe take the gospel where it has not gone before. Expanding as churches are planted. Now in this country, God's promise way back in 2 Samuel 7 has been fulfilled in the sense that the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom with his eternal king has come in Jesus. But the promise in 2 Samuel 7 is not yet fully and finally fulfilled. What is still to happen is that Jesus, God's eternal king, will come again. And then the kingdom of God will become the kingdom of this world in the new creation. And then the great rescue plan for humanity will be completed. The promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham, expanded and amplified in 2 Samuel 7 to David, fulfilled in part in Christ's coming, expanding over the earth, will be completed when the king returns and the new creation is begun. And all those who have believed in Jesus as their king by faith or in light of his coming by the knowledge of who he is and what he has done in person will live forever with him in the new creation. And all those who have not believed in him will live forever in eternal hell. So this promise in 2 Samuel 7 is the golden thread that runs right through the Bible. It is the big promise in the Bible. It has global significance. Think of a letter like Ephesians. God's plan is to unite all things in his Son. That's the future in the present. God's plan is to reveal his wisdom through churches scattered all over the world. 
And in Ephesians, the promise cashes in in your life and my life. Ephesians chapter 1. As you sit here as a Christian, every blessing is yours. You're a kingdom people caught up in this great plan of God. Now, that's the promise here in 2 Samuel 7, and it is the Bible's big promise. We're just way down the track in salvation history. Let's learn tonight from David how we pray in light of the Bible's big promise. And of course, what's presupposed in that is that it's a really good thing and a really important thing to pray in light of and in line with the Bible's big promise. We are to pray for everything. In all things you are to pray, God says, but we are certainly to pray and make a focus of our prayers. God's big, big promise, his big agenda for the earth. Now, the prayer is in two, um, two halves. And the first half in verses 18 to 24 is praise. And the second half is a petition. Now, I think it's probably true for most of us that the first half, the praise bit, is harder for us to pray than the ask bit. We're going to learn some practical stuff tonight about how to pray praise in light of God's big promise. So we're very much in the realm of the big, big promise about the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus and the new creation and people being converted and really every other promise falls under these promises. How do we praise God in light of that promise? And what do we ask? Praise 18 to 24, petition 25 to 29. Now, in the first half of the prayer, where the content and tone of the prayer is praise. David uses three questions to express his response to the Lord's extraordinary promise of grace and mercy to humankind. David gets it, doesn't he? He says this promise is for humankind. And the impact of the promise on David, that it's his house, his line. But before we look at these three questions, I want you to just appreciate the tone of this prayer. It is direct to God. But it's never, ever anything other than reverent. There's a phrase that dominates this prayer. And you'll have heard it as Alison read it almost stops you as you read the prayer. O Lord God, O Lord God, O Lord God, seven times. That word is Adonai, sovereign God, covenant-keeping God, caring God, shepherding God. How do you pray, praise, in light of the Bible's big promise 
O Lord God, O Lord God, sovereign God, even using these words as we pray, sovereign God, sovereign God. We should not be afraid of praying simply like that, sovereign God, O Lord God, O Lord God. You see, all our inclinations and desires humanly are to go, O Lord God, please. O Lord God, will you? And we'll get to that. It's important. But God delights in his people simply acknowledging who he is in his sovereignty. O Lord God, O Lord God. Why does God delight in that? Because God is God and he loves to be glorified. It gives him pleasure and it gives us pleasure. But God wants us to acknowledge before him who he is in praise so that we are convicted in our minds and hearts who he is. O Lord God. O Lord God. And when that is clear in our minds, we then begin to ask the Lord God. So it's reverent. Let's look at the Uh, three questions he asks in praise. The first one is verse uh, 18. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, here's question one, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you brought me safe thus far? How do you praise God in prayer in light of the Bible's big promise? Who am I? Who am I that you have chosen to do this through me? David is not only moved and humbled at the Lord's initiative in choosing him, but by the providence and protection of the Lord through his life thus far. Who am I that you have chosen me? Who am I that you have brought me thus far, providing for and protecting me? Who am I? And then David considers the dynasty, the kingdom that will come. David understands that what God is promising is significant for all mankind. He doesn't understand everything, but he has seen something of the sovereign global purposes of God. Now, we know more than he did. For the eternal kingdom has come with Christ. Who am I, Lord? As you read Ephesians 1, all the blessings that are ours in Christ, every spiritual blessing, a glorious inheritance, our heart should be, and the Paul moves in Ephesians 1 from an explanation of what we have in Christ to praying, who am I? Now, That must be a question that every true believer asks, understands, feels sometimes. Now, we don't feel it all the time. We just don't. We struggle still. We're fallen. We battle with our fallen flesh, even though it's forgiven sin and 
It's being conquered all the time. We need the Bible to remind us to pray, who am I? Who am I that in this world you have chosen me? Who am I that you have put providences into my life that has led me to a living church where I have found faith in Jesus? Who am I that you have opened up my mind to understand the true purposes for humanity? Who am I? Who am I? And we get a chance to reflect on that with the amazing words of amazing grace later. Second question, verses 20 to 22. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servants, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you are brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Now, David, if there is anyone who is a man of eloquence, it is him. David's psalms are wonderful expressions of praise and lament and thanksgiving, petition. But here, the truth that the Lord has revealed to David is so awesome. The revelation of God's surfaces for all humankind are so humbling and that God will use him. He doesn't know what to say. What more can David say to you? What more can David say to you? Now, we need to learn that it's not wrong as we praise God in light of the revelation of his big promise for humanity. It's not wrong to say, along with who am I, O Lord God, what more can I say? What's to be said? There's nothing to add, God, to your revelation. Why do we need to say that in our praying before we turn to the will you? Because God delights in our praise. And because as we repeat the words, O Lord God, O Lord God, Sovereign God, Adonai, who am I, O Lord God? What more can I say we get to the point when we pray, will you, God, clear in our minds and hearts that there is nothing to be added to the Lord's promise. You see, it enlarges our hearts before we pray. When was the last time, and there will have been a time, if you are a true Christian, when you were so struck by the extraordinary purposes of God, his plan of salvation, his providence weaving in and out of our lives, his grace toward you, that you sat dumbfounded before the Lord and fumbled for your words. What can I say in response? To what you have said, God. Now, words come to David in verses 21 to 22. You notice what he says. He says to God who God is, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And all the way through this first section of praise, 
and indeed in the second half, all that David does in terms of content is just repeat the promises God has promised. Who am I? What more do I see? If I'm going to say anything, I'm just going to say what you have said. Who am I? God, you have promised to build an everlasting kingdom. You've promised that, God. What can I say? What can we say in, in addition to that? Third question. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be with his people? And then he explains what God has done. What's the sense, the tone of David's third question in this praise section of the prayer? Who is like your people Israel? Not, I think, at this stage, who on earth are we that you chose us? That's the first question. What he's saying here is that God, it's actually true. There is no people on the earth like the people of God. There's no other group of people on the earth that you have made this promise to. There's no other line of kings on the earth that will lead to an eternal king. There's no other kingdom that will become everlasting. There's no other kingdom that will outlive this earth. And is it not true with all our faults and failings that there is no better place to belong on the earth now than in a living gospel church? Now, I could throw out a question. Is Chalmers the very best place to belong along with all the other churches like it? The answer should be yes. It's much much better to belong to a living church than not to be in a church. It's much, much better to belong to a living church than a church where there is no gospel and where there is no heart and where there is no love and where there is no commitment and zeal. It's just better. Isn't it better to die in the company or the fellowship of God's people than to die alone? Isn't it better to bear your anxieties to one another in a small group than to do so alone? Isn't it better that somebody has your back when you drift spiritually, has your back when you've disappeared for a few weeks? Isn't it great when a couple came back at half past four and my job was to keep people two meters apart from them? Because they love them. Where else is there in a city like that? Where else in the world can you walk into a church as a Christian, even though they speak a different language and have fellowship? Nowhere else. Where is there on the world when dominant totalitarian, totalitarian regimes seek to crush it and suppress it The church never dies. It never dies. Now that's the first half of David's prayer. O Lord God, O Lord God. How do we pray in light of the great promise of the kingdom? O Lord God, O Lord God, or who am I? Who are we as a church? Who are we that you would use us to plant a church? Who are we? I mean, who and why? It's not great. Who are we? 
What more can I see? Should we add something to the gospel? Should we add something to the word of God? And where else is there anything like a living church? Saying that to God, saying that to God, saying that back to him, saying it in your prayers, saying it as you pray with other people, saying it behind this lectern when one of us leads us as a church family in prayer will bring you to the second half of this prayer with God in your mind, in your heart, and in your soul. And his promise. And now God says in the second half of the prayer, I want you to join with me in the outworking of this promise in your prayers. I'd love to have much longer tonight or a fourth sermon on 2 Samuel 7 to reflect together on what happens uh, when a church or Christians really begin to pray like this, then something happens. Answered prayer. Answered prayer. So, three requests in the second half. First verse 25. Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. In other words, God, do what you have promised. Do what you have said. Do what you have promised. Do what you have said. Second petition, verse 26, your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. In other words, glorify your name. Honor your name forevermore. Third petition, verse 29, now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, has spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. In other words, bless the dynasty that you will establish bring about this eternal kingdom. Three petitions. The first and third are very similar. Do what you have promised. What has God promised? To bring about an eternal kingdom. That's what David prays. God, will you bring about this kingdom? The second petition is glorify your name. What does that sound like? This then, the Lord Jesus, is how you should pray. Hallowed be your name. Glorify your name. Your kingdom come. The Lord Jesus says, pray like David prayed. The Lord Jesus said, we are a thousand years on in salvation history. The kingdom has come into the world. How are we to pray in light of that great promise? What's the priority in our prayer life? Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Notice the intimacy, the directness of our Father in heaven. Reverence. Our Father, O Lord God. What do we pray? Hallowed be your name. Glorify your name. And then to Samuel 7, Jesus teaching, your kingdom come. It's extraordinary how the Bible all fits together. What David prayed a thousand years before Christ encompassed the planting of a church like Redeemer. It's exactly what he prayed.
What David prayed for a thousand years before Christ came was the glory and honor of God in the 21st century in the Western world where so much dishonors him. And the Lord Jesus said, my church with more understanding further on in salvation history, I want you to pray the same stuff. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, let me finish with uh, this. How is uh, God glorified? Answer, when his kingdom comes and when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? So when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Part of that is to pray for the return of Jesus. So when will uh, the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven, when the dwelling place of God is with humanity in the new creation? So you're praying, come Lord Jesus. But when you pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're not just praying for the return of Jesus, you're praying for the expansion of the kingdom on the earth as the gospel goes out to all the nations. May your kingdom come in the lives of people in Francophone Africa as Wycliffe translate the Bible. May your kingdom come in Charleston, in Redeemer, in London, in Birmingham. People who have been in the church today, in their churches. May your kingdom come in East Asia. May your kingdom come in Collington, where Redeemer is. May your kingdom come in your child's life your friend's life, your flatmate's life, your granny's life. May your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. That's what we're praying. How does the kingdom come? And this is really critical, and we were on this in Redeemer for the last month, and uh, so I want to finish with this. It's one answer to the, it's the answer to the prayer. Does the kingdom come if we do nothing? The answer to that question is no. And I know God is sovereign, but God tells us to do something. And he tells us to proclaim the message of the kingdom. Jesus began his ministry with these words, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? Forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death for reconciliation to God and eternal life. That's what we are to proclaim Jesus said at the end of Matthew's gospel, go into all the world and make disciples. How do you become a disciple? By repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And when that happens, the kingdom of God comes in someone's life. Does the kingdom of God come when the church engages in acts of mercy and compassion? The answer to that question is no. The kingdom comes when someone repents and believes in Jesus. 
Does that mean the church should not engage in acts of mercy and compassion? Now, you know the answer is no. It does and it must. But it simply expresses the love of the church, the love of a Christian, the grounds for the gospel. It authenticates the gospel. But our job as a church whether to rich or poor, and it needs to be increasingly in our country to all peoples of all backgrounds, is to say to them what they need to know for all eternity. It struck me this morning with Redeemer, just watching the number of new folks around who aren't Christians, and it suddenly struck me just how long eternity is. It's just forever. After this life, which is fragile. And that's what David prayed. And that's what the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. And the answer is tell people the gospel of the kingdom and plant churches. You know, being with Redeemer in the last few weeks has made me think that planting a church was a really, really good idea. It was a great idea. And all of a sudden, Redeemer is showing me, at least, what it looks like to be a church where evangelism is front and center and the priority. Let me read to you as we close um, a quotation from Billy Graham. This was at the 1974 Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization, the first of them. The third of them, I think, was 2010. And people commented at the third Lausanne World Congress that what Billy Graham had said the priority was had become subsumed by all manner of other good things. And people talk about the quiet subordination of the church's one task. This is the answer to the prayer, your kingdom come, in terms of what we do. We have one task, to proclaim the message of salvation in Jesus Christ in rich countries and in poor, among the educated and uneducated, in freedom or oppression, we are determined to proclaim Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, that men and women may put their trust in him as savior, follow him obediently, serve him in the fellowship of the church of which he alone is king and head. Let's make sure that evangelization is the one task, the church of Christ, is unitedly determined to do. Now to pray that, or to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, takes courage. Because when you pray it, we trust that God will answer it. And he might well embrace us in the answer. Just notice in verse 27 of our passage, David remarks, your servant 
has found courage to pray this prayer. O Lord God, who am I? What more can be said? Where else is there in the world like a gospel church? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord Jesus, will you answer that prayer specifically, directly in this church and through our lives? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power and clarity of your word. We thank you for this prayer to inspire us to pray. To inspire us to pray in light of the Bible's big promise. And we pray, Lord, that indeed your kingdom would come and you will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in this church community and in our evangelistic efforts, and more so we ask, and in Redeemer, and in the gospel churches, the length and breadth of these islands. Grant us the courage to pray it, the courage to keep on praying it, the courage not to deflect from what we know is the church's one task until you come again. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.